This is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. We all support human rights, right? Especially in these trying times when laws are being rewritten to eliminate what rights we have for decades accepted as our legal rights. But what if human rights, the very concept of human rights as they are understood today, leads to the inequality that undermines those very human rights we desire and demand? What if under neoliberalism, human rights become yet another form of inequality? What if the hyper-individualism of neoliberalism obscures from those of us who support human rights the economic and social rights we need to live in a more equal and far less unequal society? And maybe more importantly, what if there is another way in which we can reinterpret and reimagine human rights so they do more than they can under neoliberalism, even challenging the idea that there is no alternative to neoliberalism? I know, it's a lot of what-ifs. We'll get to those questions and a whole lot more in a few minutes when we speak with legal scholar and political theorist Zachary Manfredi, who wrote the Boston Review article, Radicalizing Human Rights. Critics say human rights discourse blunts social transformation. It doesn't have to. Zach is litigation advocacy director at the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, which you can learn more about at their website, asylumadvocacy.org. Follow them on Twitter, at Asylum Advocacy. Zach was previously an attorney and Mary McCarthy legal fellow at UAW 2680, or sorry, 2865, a statewide union in California where he focused on securing labor rights for immigrant workers. Zach also served as a law clerk to the Honorable Justice Goodwin Liu of the California Supreme Court. He has worked on prominent immigration or immigrant rights litigation, including the original lawsuit against the Trump administration's travel ban, a major challenge of the rescission of DACA, family separation damages cases, and litigation challenging the lawfulness of acting DHS officials' appointments. Zach won the Jerome Sales Hess Prize for International Law and was a member of both the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic and the Transnational Development Clinic at Yale Law School. You can follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Manfredi. That's Z-A-K-M-A-N-F-R-E-D-I. And there is something in my eye, and it's not just my regular case of being legally blind. It's driving me nuts. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new in your world? Uh, before I say, it, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, Zach told me his last name is pronounced Manfredi. Manfredi. It is Manfredi. <laughs> yeah, I know. I realized bad. that right when I was about to <laughs> read his name, I realized that I had not talked to you about that. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, with everything going on from the Roe v. Wade to cancer season starting and PMSing at the same time, I have kind of a stomachache. So. Oh, wow. Well, so at least it's not cancer. Let's hope it's not cancer. Yeah, no, no. Just the astrology. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, how's everything going otherwise? Did you see the huge painting on the gate out back? I did. Yeah, it looks good. There's like a big skull and like tentacles out there now. Yeah, it's I... very odd what's going on back there. The, uh, Pete's apparently preparing Carrie's lounge for the 50th anniversary. Uh, so my world keeps uh, changing almost every minute because at times I cannot wait to be downstairs 
uh, as the as we, at, at the bar, you know, that we're directly above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, also known as Little India, although that name is misleading as hell as a community that's far more diverse than that would suggest. I cannot wait to hang out in the beer garden with friends and listeners for unofficial office hours tomorrow, but I also do not want to take any chances at getting COVID because if I test positive for COVID, my upcoming scheduled surgery will be delayed, and not by days or weeks, but months, which would really screw up my upcoming annual family vacation at the lake, because vacation isn't really a holiday when you are awaiting a much-needed surgery. But more important than my increasingly uncertain future, Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And do you want to give us a couple of uh, listeners' answers now or after our guest? Uh, I guess after the guest, okay. but I, the question is what are you contributing to the battle against inflation what are you contributing to the battle against inflation the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want the this is how t-shirts tote bags the face covering the face mask the coffee mug the this is how guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s the trucker's cap the winter beanie or toque if you prefer you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message them to us at uh, via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to us at chuck at this is but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth this week's moment of truth will be happening live from this here studio so tune in for that later on this week's show Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with zach on a reimagining of human rights so they can truly be human rights for all leading to a far more equal society in every respect please join us on wednesday june 29th for our very last unofficial This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet that is really a drink and think. Downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. This will be our final unofficial version of office hours until we return to officially, regularly scheduled weekly office hours on Wednesday, August 24th, which will be our first official office hours since the pandemic began in February of 2020. What currently makes these office hours unofficial is their irregularity. What will make them official is the fact that I will actually be attending and hosting office hours on a weekly basis every Wednesday again, beginning on Wednesday, August 24th, and everyone who attends will get a surprise gift just for hanging out. As I said earlier, while I'm hoping I can attend tomorrow, while I have every intention on attending office hours on Wednesday, June 29th, I really don't want to catch COVID, so will I be able to muster up the courage or tamp down my paranoia about getting COVID by tomorrow evening? Find out by going to This Is Hell office hours downstairs at Carrie's Lounge. While I may or may not be attending, depending on the advice of people who are far smarter than I am and actually seem more interested in guaranteeing my well-being than I am, I do know that Jeff Dorchin of The Moment of Truth will be here as well as producer Sebastian Vopper and more than likely producer 
Uh, Alexander Jerry will also be here depending on his familial duties. Office hours aside, our This Is Art art show opens a little under a month from now. Actually, a little, yeah, yeah. Saturday, July 23rd, during the 50-year celebration of Carrie's Lounge being in operation. And the closing for This Is Art happens during our This Is How 26th Anniversary Party, our listener appreciation party, which is taking place on the final Saturday of summer, Saturday, September 17th, summer's final weekend. And I realize we just started summer this past week, and September 17th may seem a long time away, but put it in your calendar now because you are not going to want to miss this year's party as it will likely be a rager because we have not been able to host a party since back in 2019 before the pandemic began. If you are an artist or know an artist or would like to suggest an artist whose work you appreciate to be a part of This Is Art, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and send a sample of the art to, or tell us how to find it online. This is a great opportunity for working artists as we do not take any commission from any sale of your art. If you as an artist are interested or have a suggestion for an artist whose uh, work you admire, again, email me, chuck at thisishell.com, send a sample of your art or a link to the art of your suggested artist as soon as possible. Again, as the opening of This Is Art is happening on Saturday, July 23rd at Carrie's Lounge, Carrie's Lounge's 50th year in business celebration. As the This Is Hell anniversary party is, as always, a listener appreciation party, we also want your suggestions for musicians or musical acts to perform. You can also send your musical suggestion to chuck at thisishell.com. And I'm told that we pay better than you would think and probably more than we should be paying musicians, but we're really not good at balancing our bottom line. Finally, if you have something you would like to donate as a prize for our raffle, which happens during each and every one of our anniversary parties, email me at chuck at thisishell.com or just send whatever you want us to give away to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party taking place during summer's last week on and Saturday, September 17th. Write it down now, lest you forget coming up Zachary Manfredi on reinterpreting human rights in a way that may even challenge neoliberalism. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what are you contributing to the battle against inflation? What are you contributing to the battle against inflation? We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people. This is hell, but what if property did not have more rights than people? I know I asked a lot of what-if questions in the earlier introduction, but there's a lot to ask when you are considering a reconsideration of human rights that is not limited by the current state of late-stage capitalism, neoliberalism, and its ultimate focus on the individual above all. Here to help us rethink human rights in a way you may not have thought of before, legal scholar and political theorist Zachary Manfredi wrote the Boston Review article, Radicalizing Human Rights. Critics say human rights discourse blunts social transformation. It doesn't have to. Welcome to This Is Hell, Zachary. Hi, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. Thank um, you for thank you for being on our show. This is I'm sorry, I cut you off. What were you going to say? No, no, I was just thanking you, saying it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very I appreciate it. Uh, you start off your article by writing in 2017. 
Senator Bernie Sanders made the Republicans' tax bill a human rights issue by connecting it to U.N. Special Rapporteur Philip Alston's investigation of extreme poverty in the United States. Following a meeting with Sanders, Alston castigated the legislation for its potential to exacerbate already historical levels of economic inequality and social immiseration. Tax policy is human rights policy, Alston had declared, and the Republican bill represented, quote, America's bid to become the most unequal society in the world. And you add that in the wake of the uh, finalization of the tax law, arguably one of the greatest tax transfers of wealth to the rich in modern times, activists took up this framing, decrying the human rights implications of the law in creating radical economic disparities. Do you believe that was the point of the 2018 tax cut for the wealthy by then-President Donald Trump and the Republican Party, that its purpose was, and the Republican Party platform, whether it's explicitly stated as such or not, is to impose greater inequality? Is that the point? I think that um, that's certainly the effect of the political program of the modern Republican Party. Um, and in one sense, you could say, it, the, if we're you know having a discussion about the degree to which it's the intended object of people who are sort of leading that um, party and institution, um, there may be some disagreements. Some folks might be true free market stalwarts who actually believe that, um, you know, mass deregulation and transfers of wealth in the market are actually the way to produce prosperity and these sorts of things. Um, I think in effect, we know that policies that aim at sort of massive tax cuts and deregulation have continued to have the effect of, you know, not only uh, entrenching existing inequalities, but also exacerbating them. And the modern Republican Party um, has in varying ways continued to sort of I think, um, you know, marshal that sort of program, um, both as a set of neoliberal, what we might describe as neoliberal political and economic reforms, but also in a, even in more traditional sort of senses, libertarian um, ambitions, just to dismantle the regulatory state, um, which I say, as we were on the cusp of potentially a major ruling to that effect as well. So, um, so uh, you also uh, write that our political moment provides opportunities for the reconceptualization and radicalization of human rights programs. Why, in your opinion, does human rights need to be reconceptualized? How does thinking on human rights fall short in providing a greater amount of equality, which you argue is necessary to have real human rights? So why, in your in your opinion, does human rights need to be reconceptualized? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there are, and obviously there, there are varying strands and you know, social movements invoking human rights in different ways. And part of what I try to do in this piece and other writing is sort of pull out the more radical dimensions of, of that movement work and of theorizing that, that push human rights in a more egalitarian vein or direction. Um, but I think there's, there's a long tradition of sort of critique on the left and the socialist left in particular of human rights as sort of um, tools or implements in law that often codify sort of, you know, capitalist social relations. Human rights can be conceived of as, you know, rights to private property or contract or trade. You know, Marx famously described them as, you know, basically the rights of the egoistic man of, of civil society that, you know, then in turn um, left the state to sort of, uh, and private power to treat individuals as, you know, um, objects for control and domination. And I think in the modern sense, there's a worry that human rights agendas um, can, in fact, be quite compatible with programs of neoliberal political and economic reform. Um, you know, a lot of scholars have made the criticism that 
the modern human rights movement, which, you know, um, the international human rights movement, at least as it is often referred from the 1970s, really traces its um, origin to the same sort of temporal and geographic coordinates as neoliberalism. So you had, you know, shock therapy and economic investment in number of countries in the global south. At the same time, you had human rights NGOs that were sort of on the rise. And what you saw, in fact, was that, and some, you know, I discussed this in the article, a number of scholars have argued that, you know, this was not an, an accidental um, uh, sort of convergence between neoliberalism and the rise of certain human rights programs, human rights programs that really were predicated on the idea of a certain um, kind of subject, maybe a consumerist subject, a subject who is really focused on securing private property, a limited set of rights, but that then those rights in turn were cast in ways that are often used to sort of um, actually institute programs of neoliberal reform, requiring states to divest from, you know, maybe other programs that provided for public welfare. In the case of a lot of neoliberal reformers, you know, human rights were cast as what I think Quinn Slobodian calls xenos rights, or the rights of foreign capital to actually, you know, um, avoid state expropriation. Um, Jess White, whose work I talk about in the, in the article as well, really talked about how neoliberals used human rights to sort of advance their own version of a sort of moral set of claims um, that would be part and parcel of market society um, with the ambition of sort of weakening or preventing democratic control over the economy. And so I think there, there's certainly a worry, which you know plays out differently to varying degrees. Obviously, there are different human rights programs, different uses of them, but certainly that human rights could be, um, you know, um, share a close affinity to certain neoliberal programs. And even if they're not necessarily advancing those programs, um, at least aren't uh, adequate tools to combat or fight the kind of inequality that um, neoliberal political economy has um, sort of, you know, allowed to explode over the past um, 50 years. You mentioned this upcoming Supreme Court decision that might even reinforce greater inequality. What is that upcoming decision? What people, what should people be looking for who are following the court at this moment? Gosh, yeah. I mean, I think there are a number of ways to think about what's happening in the court right now. And obviously, um, most recently, folks are thinking about, I'm sure, um, obviously, the Dobbs decision on abortion, which you know could be framed as a human rights issue, the curtailment of a long-held um, right that often... Um, to reproductive um, freedom and justice through abortion access. Um, I think I, at the top of the, the discussion, I was referring to the case um, regarding the EPA regulations, which is, it's, I, I won't go into necessarily the details, the complicated questions of administrative law, but the, the gist is that the court is using and has used a number of doctrines um, basically to try to assert sometimes rights against the administrative state, our ability to regulate um, private power, private actors um, to set rules um, and standards across the board. That case particularly is about the EPA and its ability to regulate um, in the climate change space. And, you know, um, we don't know how bad the ruling will be. I think we're likely to find out tomorrow um, and see the details of it. But I think more broadly as well, for those who are interested in watching the court um, and interested in this issue of sort of the question of human rights and rights more generally and, and the court's legacy is to look at the First Amendment jurisprudence over the past few decades, which has really, I think, um, come to exemplify a kind of neoliberal reason um, in practice um, where, you know, speech, the, the simple idea of, of non-restricting speech has in fact become sort of an apology for, um, you know, the unrestricted um, ability of capital to, you know, um, do basically, you know, what it wants or to mobilize the state, in fact, to secure its role, whether that's restriction, you know, um, commercial speech doctrine, um, the dismantling, preventing the regulators from being able to, um, 
you know, uh, institute policies or price controls or anything like that um, on the basis that it would be a restriction on speech. I think you've seen really just a continued radical expansion of the notion of the First Amendment playing sort of that role um, and will likely continue to see it. Um, you saw it in, in you saw it also in the labor context and Janus, the ability to you know, sort of enforce national right to work laws of the First Amendment. And so I think it's going to be a continued area of struggle to sort of define the uh, proper ambit of, of First Amendment jurisprudence um, and really a, a kind of a terrifying one. So then considering all these challenges to equality and what has happened with the discussion over human rights, what is it about this moment, in your opinion, that provides opportunities for reconceptualization and radicalization of human rights? What do you see in this moment that allows that reimagination of human rights now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think that there are, uh, you know, in my other work, I try to trace longer historical legacies of sort of left and socialist movements who are invoking human rights really towards completely different political projects. And in fact, making the claim that a proper realization of human rights really was entailed with totally different social order and totally different provision of welfare and egalitarianism and these sorts of things. I think our current moment um, is one that's ripe for sort of pushing a more egalitarian sense of human rights for a few reasons. The first of which I think is what I would sort of identify as a, a crisis in the orders of liberal internationalism, um, which I think we've seen for a number of years, from, you know, from Brexit, the Trump election, the rise of far-right political forces to you know, COVID and now ongoing crises with inflation, obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You have a sense in which the, the previous sort of um, guardians or you know, people who are controlling the international human rights agenda that that sort of order is in, in a state of flux, in a state of destabilization. And so received meanings of human rights, which may have for a long time been either compatible with neoliberal political programs or um, at least indifferent to their spread are in fact, I think in a lot of state of flux. And at the same time, I think you have a lot of people, you know, in the article I focused on the progressive movement within the United States from Senator Sanders, you know, 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights to um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's sort of calls for more just society program focusing on the international covenant and economic and social rights. And I think what you see is at the same moment that there's this destabilization in the broader sort of maybe, you know, hegemonic conception of human rights that existed since the end of the Cold War, really, um, you see a, a progressive push to sort of reclaim human rights as part of an egalitarian project. And you know, that falls on the cusp of, I think, a number of social movements I talk about from the, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis. But I think what you're seeing is sort of a push to say, no, in fact, you know, if we really want to secure human rights, what we need to be securing is, you know, the the both the welfare more broadly of the population, but also an egalitarian social order and also a democratic social order um, in which, you know, uh, democratic control over the economy and over decisions that influence, um, you know, how we go about and live together and, and who gets what. Um, that that's really what human rights politics needs to be about. And so I, I just think it's it's a moment where that possibility, I think, is is alive again. I think it's hard still to do. And there are many challenges with articulating and pushing social, you know, in favor of social movements that are doing this kind of work of radicalizing human rights. But I also think it's an exciting opportunity um, sort of as well. And you write that contemporary appeals to human rights arguably have the most to offer by developing a more egalitarian dimension to the politics of human rights. The traditional liberal conception of human rights as individual entitlements limits the capacity of the state to regulate private power and mobilizes state authority on behalf of private property 
and capital accumulation? And I, I realize this is kind of a, a big question, but as they stand uh, right now, how does human rights reinforce neoliberalism? Because I, I don't think that there are many people who are uh, uh, supporters of human rights who may also see themselves as supporters of neoliberalism. Yes, and I think I think it really depends on what you mean by human rights. And so I think you know obviously there's different ways in which human rights are invoked. But I think if you look sort of at the the longer tradition of sort of what human rights as an actual as a legal regime as something you're going to instantiate that the state is going to be charged with upholding and protecting and committing to, especially in the 20th century, you see really very concrete examples and ways in which human rights were sort of. Um, if not, and I think there are instances where they certainly were actually compatible or sort of engaged with neoliberalism, um, at least with this, what Sam Moyne would say, they were indifferent to the rise of inequality of neoliberalism. He describes them as, you know, powerless companions to neoliberalism. Um, I think some of the examples that I cited before to you, like, um, Quinn Slobodian's work, sort of seeing how the language of human rights was part of sort of the agenda of a lot of, um, neoliberal reformers at the level of inter at developing international institutions. So these are folks who thought of, you know, human rights is basically saying, well, you know, I have a human right to this, to this property. I have a human right to sort of the free use and disposition of my capital in this state. And in fact, you, you know, often um, post-colonial projects of sort of economic redistribution that were trying to create opportunities in the global South in the wake of sort of decolonization were confronted with often human rights appeals or human rights arguments as to why you couldn't, for example, expropriate national resources that were owned by a, you know, a, a petrol company in the global North. Um, you know, Jess White's work, I think actually um, gets even closer into sort of a critique of non-governmental organizations and their role and function even as human rights advocates in a lot of spaces in the global South where um, you had, you know, doctors without borders at the time, um, and then you had other uh, basically neoliberal versions of that institution, um, you know, which was an institution made people think that they like and they care a lot about, but nevertheless was still sort of promoting certain agendas in these states, which were about curtailing the ability of sort of autonomous social movements to make decisions and choices about how um, they would, they would, you know, structure their own economies or these sorts of things and, and making arguments really about how socialist political programs that were um, trying to be advanced at that time had to be defeated and how sort of human rights um, in particular were being curtailed or attacked by um, those movements, by, by um, socialist movements. And so I think that there's, you know, you could really trace out the history in a lot of ways. You could see human rights as being about, you know, if they're really only about speech or they're about capital, these sorts of things, certainly that's true. Um, one other thing I would add, sorry, and I'll, I'll get back to questions, but one way I think often, even in the space of um, economic social and cultural rights, which I've written about more in, in other places, is that you often saw a version of those rights um, being championed by folks like Alston, who um, you know, I'm, I'm favorable to in this article, but I've been critical of in other places too, where basically people made the argument that you know the realization of economic and social rights was perfectly compatible with what they would have described as uh, free market capitalism, free market social orders with the goal saying, you know, you have a lot of flexibility to enforce economic and social rights. The goal is progressive realization of those rights. There's no requirement that there be mass redistribution in order to secure these rights. And in fact, you know, everyone can embrace them, whether it's the United States under Reagan or socialist states. There's no there's no requirement that you have any particular vision of political economy in order to um, enact um, and protect economic and social rights. And so I think that 
um, way of thinking about the situation really allowed sort of neoliberalism to thrive and made human rights sort of no threat in some ways to um, a kind of neoliberal political agenda. And part of what I'm trying to, to point to in this article and encourage others and, and movements to focus on is how do human rights become in fact um, something that's, you know, neoliberalism can't simply absorb. What versions and articulations of human rights actually push back against sort of those reforms and say, no, in fact, you know, you can't have genuine economic and social rights in the pure order of free market capitalism. Um, they require a curtailment, a limiting, and some to some extent of the excesses of, of market fundamentalism. So I, I could be wrong, but I, I think the public may have one concept of human rights that is might be more expansive than what the legal understanding of human rights is. So how limited are is the the public concept, if you will, of human rights? How much is that limited by our current state of inequality, which is imposed by neoliberalism? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. I think often. So there are a few different ways like I could try to answer it. Maybe I'll I'll give a little bit of a personal anecdote first to sort of um, explain how uh, the context in which I originally came to think about this sort of question. So on the one hand, there are, you're right, sort of legal received meanings of human rights. There are also um, longstanding critiques of human rights. When I was a graduate student ages ago at, at Berkeley, I was deep in sort of political theory, working on critiques of human rights, critiques of the law, seeing the limits of law and legal institutions to affect change. But I was also really deeply involved in a lot of organizing work. I was at UAW 2865. I was involved in a lot of immigrants' rights organizing at the time, too, and other labor organizing and union work. Um, and one of the things I hear people say all the time is, you know, labor rights are human rights. Um, healthcare is a human right. Uh, women's rights are human rights. And you sort of saw constant appeals by people in the public to this sort of intuitive language of human rights and claiming something as a human right as being a way of saying, you know, um, we have sort of uh, th that it has power, that it's something that's transformative, something fundamental, something constitutive of whatever their vision of, you know, social justice was and claiming it as a human right was significant for those social movements and those people. And so I think what I saw was sort of, ah, there, there is this critique, there is this history, there are these problems. And that nevertheless, there is still a broad public desire to use, rely on, and I think radicalize the language of human rights towards um, broader demands that resonate with people. And so I guess I see the public understanding is um, capable of accommodating a much wider and a much more radical range of human rights ideas because it is such a pervasive language and one that people really associate with sort of fundamental um, desires for justice or dignity and those sorts of things. So do those who support neoliberalism, which radically exacerbates inequality, do they support a limited concept of human rights that is compatible with inequality? Is neoliberalism an attempt at limiting human rights? Yeah, I, I think I think you certainly could say that in the sense, and obviously there are many different articulations and versions of neoliberalism too. In my other work, I edited a collection with um, colleague Will Callison called "Mutant Neoliberalism," which sort of traces modern iterations of different neoliberal political programs in relation to the populist far right and these sorts of things. And so I think you'd have to look at what neoliberalism you were talking about and how and where. But there certainly is a history in the 20th century of neoliberalism and neoliberal reformers framing human rights within their own terms and language. Um, neoliberals who had a version of human rights that were sort of compatible with a very means tested, limited version of the welfare state, 
human rights to the point where we would secure just enough um, so that we wouldn't disturb the proper functioning of markets, but never more than that. Human rights where we would prevent capital and private property from being taxed or regulated in certain ways. Um, and, you know, those sorts of things. There's a, a famous piece actually by um, Friedrich von Hayek, um, which is a critique of the um, International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights um, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where he basically says there are good human rights and there are bad human rights. Um, and, you know, only the real good human rights, which you might construe as liberal rights to, you know, um, really sort of core property rights, things like this. Those are the real human rights. And these other human rights, um, economic, social rights, he's like, well, those are those are dirty rights championed by Marxists that were sort of invented and used to try to push for what he calls a totalitarian social order. Um, but I think what it shows you is that there were there were conflicting visions over which uh, human rights program and agenda would win out. And, and I think in a lot of ways, the neoliberal one was regnant for a while, um, but no longer, um, I think, so conclusively. Speaking of Marxists, you mentioned Karl Marx's famous 1844 commentary on the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, and you write how the imagined subject of rights was for Marx nothing other than the self-interested, egoistic bourgeois whose liberty to engage in trade, contract, and property acquisition would be secured at precisely the same time that the social and communal aspects of human social life would be denied. So does Marx see human rights as articulated in the uh, 18th century as a cover for exploitation, colonialism, imperialism, if not white supremacy and privilege? Yeah, I mean, I think so famously that, you know, we're talking there about Marx's writing and on the Jewish question, um, which some people will say is Marx before he was a proper Marxist. So there's certainly um, a degree of debate to be had. But I mean, certainly there are elements and traditions of Marxism that do make that critique and think that's the sum total of human rights. There's actually Marx's own writings, I think, are really complicated and interesting on the subject of rights and, and legalism. You certainly have things, you know, there's uh, a parts of in the German ideology where Marx Engels will say something like, you know, Marxism is opposed to legalism and rights is the you know highest form of legalism. You have other instances where Marx sort of said, you know, we have to think about the concrete rights uh, that are you know, available in Eng this certain English charter as opposed to the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And there's a lot more to Marxist critique that I obviously didn't necessarily have time to fully develop and engage in in the article, but I think what Marxism shows is that, you know, certain, a materialist critique of rights and law will say, well, what are, what are in fact the values and underlying institutions and forces and powers that are uh, underwriting any particular regime of human rights? How do we understand what those rights, you know, do in practice and what's the social order that they're ultimately, um, you know, codifying or expressing? And I think that kind of analysis is really helpful for understanding the differences in different kinds of human rights regimes and thinking through what they might look like. Um, in the 20th century, though, certainly, I mean, it was, you know, the role of um, states from the global south, the role of the Soviets and others in shaping some of the instruments that we now have as human rights is, is you know, was quite profound. And so I don't think you can simply say or draw that, say, you know, this, these were the Marx critique these rights in these ways. Therefore, you know, Marxism is opposed to human rights and all these different articulations. Um, you know, I think there are lots of lots of ways in which that's not true and doesn't adequately capture sort of the broader history of socialists and Marxist thought about rights. 
um, and law in the 20th century. Um, certainly you have folks like Ernst Bloch, who famously you know, thought that you, know, you need this dialectical synthesis to get up farther, a more appropriate Marxist socialist version of human rights. Um, I really like uh, Nikos Boulantzis' work on uh, rights, where he you know, says that you know, a lot of rights that we have in the 20th century are really the sort of just the concretized gains and struggles from working class movements. Um, and so they're not just capitalist social relations. They're in fact, um, there are rights that are the achievements of the working class that now the state is forced to abide by due to social conflict. And so I think I, I, that's sorry, going on and on. I could talk about this forever. I wrote my dissertation about it, but um, you know, I think uh, it's Marxism and rights is a very interesting question. In 2018, historian Samuel Moyne, who uh, you quote in your article, uh, he was on our show to discuss his book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And I know that this is an oversimplification of his writing, but Samuel argues that we do not want the right to clean water. We want clean water, for example, Uh, that human rights become an obstacle to whatever we actually want. Is that what Marx was arguing in the 19th century? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that Marx's argument in part in the 19th century comes down to this claim that, you know, what human rights don't achieve is is like genuine human emancipation, which is this concept. Um, it's be a little hard to pin down, but really is about sort of human freedom and potential and, and that rights are sort of, you know, a limited form of emancipation. They're emancipating the state from responsibility. They're not emancipating us from the broader conditions of our own, own oppression across the board. Um, I think what Sam is trying to articulate is, is, is showing the limits of human rights as well. And so there might be a convergence between a certain line of Marxist critique and um, Sam's argument. I think that um, there, I, I think the Marxist critique runs a little deeper, I guess is what I would say, because I think it, it, it's trying to capture the ways in which um, human rights can actually sort of often function as a part and parcel of a system of oppression and not merely as sort of um, distractions from achieving our broader goals um, as well. And so it requires more, I think, attention to the, to the work that human rights um, can do um, in any given society or social arrangement. We are speaking with legal scholar and political theorist Zachary Manfredi, who wrote the Boston Review article, Radicalizing Human Rights. He is litigation and advocacy director at the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, which you can learn more about at their website, asylumadvocacy.org. Toward the end of the Obama administration, President Obama uh, he gave the speech on inequality and the challenges to democracy when it comes to expanding and increasing inequality. Can we have greater equality without reconceiving human rights in your opinion? Can, could somebody or could like, for instance, in a fictitious world, the Obama administration address inequality? Uh, how much could they really address inequality without reimagining human rights? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that in our current world, what I will say, I think the language of human rights and both the role of human rights and rights-based claims in our law and legal institutions is extremely pervasive. It's, it's a deep connection at both the level of individual commitments, social movement commitments to rights, and also institutional focus and avenues for rights. So I would have a hard time imagining, given that set of extant circumstances, 
an achievement, our ability to achieve a more radical egalitarian social order without also, um, you know, changing our views of human rights in some ways or pushing them in a more egalitarian direction or vein along with some of the examples that I outlined in the article. Um, I don't think it's impossible that you could imagine a, a society or a social world that didn't rely on the language of rights or human rights primarily as its, as its main focus or um, mode of expressing claims about equality or justice. Um, but I think in some ways that would be a world very different from our own. Um, and in some ways it, it, I think is easier to try to work with and transform the institutions and the languages for justice that we do have and push them in more radical directions rather than trying to invent wholly new vocabularies or programs of justice that might not be as, as resonant with um, our sort of current conjuncture. And you write that contemporary scholars observe how rights claims are invoked to prevent the redistributive uh, taxation of privately held capital to protect the rights of corporate entities to speak as in uh, Citizens United and to weaken the power of labor unions with right to work laws. So what should corporations getting the rights of citizens in Citizens United, what should that have revealed to us about the current concept of rights. And to you, what explains why Citizens United did not immediately begin a new conversation about reimagining and reinterpreting rights? Oh, gosh. Um, I know it's well, I think you're, you, No, no, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, that whole list of uh, examples that you cited from the article, I think it shows us the way in which often rights-based claims now are you know, are geared towards um, entities or actors. It's like assigning rights not to human beings or collectives even, but really agents and different articulations, representations of the interests of capital. Um, and I think that is one of the, you know, fundamental things that we need to change in thinking about human rights is who is the subject of rights, who's the bearer of rights. And that's a, you know, deep philosophical question in some way, but it also be a very practical question. It's like, you know, can you actually assign rights to these entities rather than others? Um, but what are those entailments of those rights and what do they mean in practice is a really important question. Citizens United in particular, I think, is a great example just because it does show it's, it's you know, kind of a, a neoliberalization of jurisprudence around the First Amendment uh, really to its core is, is um, exemplified by that case. You see corporations, so money is speech, which really is an older legacy um, going back to Buckley and these other cases, but, but really there became um, sort of um, unbridled and, and given new force in life. And I think that, I think it actually did in some ways start a conversation. So, you know, I think initially you, what you saw, for example, in 2011, when a movement that I spent a lot of time working with and part of was, was Occupy, um, you saw, for example, calls on the International Human Rights Day, you saw people say, you know, human rights, not corporate rights, trying to contrast explicitly with Citizens United. And I think it was in some ways a fulcrum for people sort of at least in an intuitive sense recognizing that a certain whatever version of rights and corporate rights that was that was going on there was actually not um, compatible with a more radical understanding of of human rights and what the public at least um, wanted to identify with human rights and so human rights became a point of contrast to I think the rights articulated in Citizens United um, and that became opened up I think a space um, along with many other things that were going on at the same time before sort of a shift to thinking about economic and social rights and thinking about economic and social rights in a more egalitarian vein, really, um, in the wake of the financial crisis um, forward. 
And you point out how Samuel Moyne has argued that human rights advocacy has in practice been limited to a minimalist agenda that remains indifferent to the development of extreme inequality. On this account, human rights movements have focused on only the most extreme abuses of state violence and, at best, contemplated guaranteeing a set of minimal social and economic floor conditions. So what explains this minimalist floor conditions rather than ceiling conditions of human rights and human rights advocates? Is this an attempt to have human rights without having equality, without challenging capitalism, leading to uh, human rights then being just kind of a a, a payoff, uh, hush money, crumbs, if you will, to those who are the most exploited while allowing for the continuation of a system of exploitation? Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are certainly um, versions of human rights and human rights programs that I do think at least, if not um, designed to have that effect, certainly do have that, the effect that you describe in practice. Um, I think to sort of, you know, one, sometimes you can look at, there are, there are neoliberals who are actually maybe in favor of this agenda, who wanted a limited set of human rights, who did view it as sort of a way to stabilize market relations and otherwise not, um, we're not interested in a broader human rights agenda. I think at the same time, you also had sort of another set of actors, you know, Alston's writings from an earlier period of time, I think exemplify this, where the idea was that human rights were supposed to be ideologically neutral during the Cold War and that they were going to be this way to, um, which often a lot of actors didn't agree and they were fighting about it, um, but that for those who wanted to advance sort of an agenda, broad adoption of human rights, legal instruments and these sorts of things, the idea was, you know, human rights are, they're like a nice goal to have, something we could have in the future. and. We will um, strive for them in various ways, but you don't really have to commit resources or anything like that to achieving social and economic rights. But it's better that you sort of give you put your best foot forward, give it your give it your best shot to different states. And you didn't want to also compel the allocation of resources, you know, these sorts of things that people were really concerned about would be too demanding for states to sign on, you know, for example, the human rights treaties. Um, but I think what that meant is that human rights sort of became very, could be, especially economic and social rights were seen as sort of you know, ineffectual, that you didn't actually need to do much to be compliant with um, the demands of those human rights, um, human rights obligations. And I think now what we're seeing is really a shift to say, well, what, what are these rights? What does it mean to actually have economic and social rights if you're only ever trying to progressive realize, progressively realize them or push them into some future date? What does it mean if those rights only entail sort of a very minimal set of floor conditions and they all you know, allow for such extreme inequality um, which then becomes the conditions of oppression. And I think people are really increasingly political actors, theorists, advocates, social movements are really pushing back on these accounts and saying, that's just not adequate. That's not a, a vision of a human rights oriented society that um, we would want. And so we need something more robust. Um, and um, that's sort of, I think, the direction that a lot of folks are pushing in the future. So by your assessment, did human rights then the, the current concept that's accepted of human rights, uh, did human rights then set the stage for or provide a fertile environment for market fundamentalism and neoliberalism to take shape and power? Did human rights, as they stand today, lay the foundation for neoliberalism? Gosh, so I think I wouldn't quite put it that way. I try to be a little, maybe a little more materialist about it. I don't think the human rights themselves are the things which laid the foundation for market fundamentalism. But I do think that the triumph 
of sort of neoliberal political programs and agendas did um, allow for the instantiation and the hegemony of certain human rights projects that were compatible with those um, visions of market fundamentalism. And so the human rights, you know, the limited versions of human rights, the human rights that were used to curtail sort of programs of redistribution, those were the rights that were then picked up um, that were sort of championed um, by a lot of these actors. And, and I think that, you know, you, I would, so it's, I just would place the causal error or the emphasis a little bit the other way around. I wouldn't blame human rights, some abstract notion of human rights for, you know, inaugurating the world of neoliberalism. But I would say that, um, the various factors and forces that led to the rise of neoliberalism in turn did sort of push and instantiate a certain vision of human rights um, that then in turn um, were used to support that same order. Margaret Thatcher did not coin the phrase, but she famously said there is no alternative as she believed in uh, neoliberalism as a way to push back against socialism of any shape. She also said there is no such thing as society can reinterpreting human rights as social and economic rights, can that push back against neoliberalism by offering an alternative with a focus on reconnecting a society back together? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly hope so. And I think certain versions of human rights can help do that work. Obviously, that's the work of a more broader set of institutions, movements, and folks trying to push back against decades of neoliberal hegemony and institutions and practices, but I certainly think that there are um, ways in which egalitarian conceptions of human rights can help do that work. And I also think that those, you know, one of the things I argue is that even during the reign of Thatcher and Reagan and those eras, there were all sorts of socialist actors, thinkers pushing for different conceptions of human rights at the very same moment. And in some ways, those sort of submerged histories or accounts of rights that existed alongside the neoliberal era, um, you know, were always there. And those threads and traditions, um, those movement discourses can be pulled on, um, can maybe be reactivated and pushed and transformed in our current context to offer a more radical, robust vision of human rights. One that emphasizes, you know, obligations we owe towards each other, the duties that accompany the rights claims that we have, but that also really you know, show us, I think, I think that, you know, that's the core of what I, the, the versions of human rights I'm most invested in are ones that are trying to imagine what kind of social order we would want to live in together that, you know, has broad provision for the social welfare that is um, more egalitarian, that protects, you know, civil and political rights at the same time, it really has robust um, economic and social equality built into it. And that that sort of vision for a for a social order, that vision for a different kind of world, um, I think is encoded in these accounts of human rights, and it allows us to grab onto those existing institutions that you know speak in the language of human rights and maybe push and transform them um, precisely in those directions. And so that's why I think it's a project that we um, need to continue to be invested in. Neoliberalism in the United States has bipartisan approval. Many people point to the Carter administration as the first steps of embracing neoliberalism, although most people would point to the presidency of Ronald Reagan as at the very least exacerbating that uh, system of neoliberalism. To what extent does the concept of human rights, including social and economic rights at this moment, have bipartisan opposition? To what extent does it have support within the halls of power in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think what I tried to point to in this article was sort of, I think, 
nascent calls within broader progressive um, political actors work um, demanding sort of a return to thinking about social and economic rights. So, you know, I think AOC's Just Society Initiative, which really called attention to the uh, International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, program that needed to be championed, all these sorts of things. But I will say, you know, more broadly, there, there continues to be um, pretty broad opposition, for instance, to, you know, ratifying um, uh, or adopting the, the, that covenant. You know, the United States is pretty opposed um, to doing it. And it's been, have tried, many actors have tried for many years to try to get um, broad political support to buy into international human rights um, on, on that score. But I think some of that has more to do with the treaty. And so, you know, there are many different ways you could parse that opposition. I think, though, that there are certainly currents within the progressive movement in the United States that really are trying to build consensus around, um, you know, a certain human rights program that would be more radical, that would be about sort of economic and social rights. Um, healthcare, in particular, I think, is a space where you see, you know, the idea that Medicare for all is, is an articulation of a human rights program. Um, is I think increasingly a popular notion. I think you see that with other programs too, around housing, around access to, um, you know, even debt forgiveness and other forms of of you know provision, social provision that would not only be you know satisfying minimums, but would be providing you know like robust public alternatives to um, you know just market based mechanisms. And I think in that sense, you you do see increasing if not, certainly not necessarily bipartisan, but at least progressive invocations of these rights that are building sort of at least a, a counter program um, to the broader opposition that you'd seen in the past. You also point out that critiques of human rights call our attention to the importance of developing a more radically egalitarian vision of human rights advocacy. Egalitarianism in this sense should not be construed as merely a matter of formal equality before the law. The insistence say that all members of a polity have equal rights in the sense of equal claim to a minimal set of rights claims. Rather, a genuinely egalitarian politics of human rights should underscore the ways that radical social, economic, and political inequality necessarily enable widespread violations of human rights. This is not only because, practically speaking, the concentration of private wealth makes it difficult to achieve even the minimum guarantees of basic economic and social rights, extreme inequalities in wealth also create disparities in political power and fundamentally undermine democratic control over economic governance. So should this reinterpretation, this reimagination, this radicalization of human rights then encompass democratic rights? And is and, and, and beyond economic and social rights, is that what is needed? Human rights need to be reinvented as democratic rights? I think yes. Um, I do think that there is a, a deep um, importance and significance to having a sort of democratic vision of a human rights program, and not only a vision of democracy that is about you know merely political participation, but uh, you know what is genuine democratic control over um, economic governance, democrat genuine democratic control where you know the demos, the people are the ones who are deciding over the conditions um, of the legal, political, and economic, social conditions of, of that govern their own lives. And I think that that, what I tried to outline there is to say, you know, we have there, you know, you could have escalating notions of equality or what it means um, 
and that we need a more robust one, you know, equality could simply be everyone, you know, that's the quality that Marx certainly critiqued was very critical, the notion of equality that, you know, it's like, oh, equal with respect to what, you know, everyone equal to be unequal when you take the background conditions um, there, everyone, everyone has an equal right to property, but only certain people get to have property, you know, it's what a strange equality. Um, but the more robust notions of an equality would say, yeah, you know, it's like you, you actually have to take into account substantive material equality across the board and think about how human rights are actually protected, necessary to protect that. Do you really have human rights if you don't have those sorts of broader provision? But then third, sort of in that sequence is saying, you know, but also what about um, control, democratic decision making over um, how we do distribution and redistribution? And there, I think, you really do have to say, you know, um, you, you have to, you see that the connection to human rights and inequality is a deeper one um, and one that's sort of fundamental to um, any sort of political project trying to really achieve human rights um, at the level of sort of, you know, substantive economic and, and social equality. So can framing the discussion or changing the frame of the discussion away from wealth redistribution to human rights, do you think that that can be more effective even in convincing those who do not believe in wealth uh, redistribution as a way of moving forward to having more rights for all? Yeah, I mean, in some ways that might be as a strategic question for like particular political and rhetorical debates. I think that um, on the one hand, I don't think we can be, we shouldn't be, have to be too shy about loose, using the language of, of redistribution or distribution generally. I think we need to figure out ways to talk about it that don't scare folks, that emphasize fundamental fairness, that emphasize the way in which our current system is already one that's deeply, you know, redistributive. It's just redistributive upwards towards the wealthy and concentrations of power and, you know, a narrow few of, you know, elite actors and corporations. Um, but I think that oftentimes couching questions of redistribution in the language of human rights can be a potent um, sort of rhetorical um, but also, I mean, I genuinely believe it as well, not just not merely rhetorical strategy, um, because it says it shows, you know, why questions of distribution are deeply tied to notions of freedom and notions of um, human dignity. You know, the fact that we live in a society that is fundamentally unequal and the fact that that inequality actually prevents the realization of our basic humanity for most human beings. I think that's what uh, sort of a human rights focus allows us to see um, and that that can be a pretty powerful motivating tool and an explainer as to why there's actually a necessity towards um, reordering um, you know, society such that um, we don't have this, this extreme inequality as our fundamental background condition. And you mentioned that progressive tax policy is egalitarian because it can lessen disparities in political power. If tax breaks for the wealthy expand the power of the wealthy within a so-called democracy, uh, to you, what explains why opponents of those tax breaks for the wealthy, why don't they make the argument that those breaks not only mean the wealthy pay less taxes, but in doing so, they get more power? Why don't tax break opponents frame such breaks as the purchase of greater political power as a disparity of power as well as wealth? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think they should, I think um, more work should be done to explain why um, tax policy has a really important role um, in curtailing excess power of wealthy individuals and, you know, maintaining a fundamentally egalitarian social order. I think there are people who, you know, are certainly 
invested in that argument too and and make those sorts of claims but i think you could i think i don't see a reason why necessarily we shouldn't be making that claim um as part of our broader political rhetoric around these questions i think it's true i think it's true that you know uh, societies that have um more progressive taxation policies that don't allow you know accumulation of capital in these ways or, or the spending of wealth on certain political programs that you know place those limits are fundamentally um you know enacting democratic policies that encourage democracy that encourage equality that encourage more equal political participation there are legal obstacles in the formal realm of the first amendment campaign finance to some of those arguments but certainly at the level of um you know just uh, rhetorical uh you know a framing i think it's it's powerful and we should do more of it the right seems to be at least claiming a monopoly on the concept of freedom freedom with the branding of uh, using the flag that says don't tread on me and that kind of thing. And you write that a human rights analysis in short highlights how law and policy implicate fundamental freedoms and human needs. Is a fight for human rights then, is that a fight for freedom? Can we all attain freedom equally through framing our needs as human rights? And if so, what explains the right's uh, insistence on freedom but not equality? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, gosh, I mean, it's it's somewhat like a big, you know, huge political theory question about like the dialectic of freedom and equality and the relationship and modernity, all these sorts of things. But I think the contemporary right has sort of, you know, often a lot of those arguments are in bad faith about freedom, but they really have sort of often, a, a, a I think, a naive negative liberty notion of freedom. Freedom is just when the state isn't actively constraining me. Um, but if you think of freedom as actually having something to do with not just, you know, one actor externally constraining you, but all the actors that are externally constraining you, as well as your sort of basic condition or ability to do things, um, then you have a much broader notion of freedom. And I think that, um, you know, but it, I think it's it's intuitively plausible to people, too. It's like, well, if, you know, corporations constrain my freedom too, other private actors constrain my freedom um as well as the state um and of course the right likes the state to constrain our freedom in all sorts of ways you know it's like from abortion restrictions to policing all sorts of things so that's why i said you know some of those arguments seem like they're um in bad faith but even if you took a more libertarian right um seriously you'd have to account well what about the what about you know that's marx's fundamental critique too it's like well civil society imposes all sorts of constraints on our freedom you know, or Marx or Hannah Arendt, pick your theorist, you know, necessity imposes constraints on my freedom. If I'm starving, if I'm hungry, I'm not very free because, you know, I'm subject to the conditions of my own immiseration. And so real freedom, um, I think a more robust sense of freedom is a freedom where we have, you know, the basic provision and care to achieve our full human potential in various ways, you know, and that's what I think, you know, you could frame that as a human, you know, what are all the human rights that the state needs to secure in order for me to be able to live my full free human potential to actualize um, you know, myself as a human being? Um, and that requires both freedom from external constraints like corporate power, police power, those sorts of things that would you know, stifle my, my emancipation, but also the basic provision of, of, an, of the goods and services that allow me to achieve my, um, you know, my the version of myself that I most aspire to. And so um, you need a robust account of freedom, I think, to, to do that work. So are human rights as they exist today then, 
and, and under neoliberalism? Are they an obstacle for us to have a structural analysis of the world that uh, we exist within today? Are they an obstacle for us to realize the shortcomings of neoliberalism and cap- capitalism more generally? I think if we allow ourselves to be limited by the version of human rights that is often championed by neoliberal reformers or other folks, or even by sort of centrists and other people who sort of have an incrementalist view of human rights, then I think they can serve as a barrier to sort of realizing more robust or radical programs of political reform. But I think in turn, at the same time, if we say, you know, in fact, human rights, which maybe people are broadly claiming as something, you know, no one's saying I oppose human rights, but we're saying, well, what does it really mean to be a champion of human rights? What does it mean to articulate a vision of human rights and human freedom that is entailed by those rights that we as a society, as a people actually want? What is the, what is the social order that a robust account of human rights would have to um, be accompanied by? And I think that's where you sort of push back against the neoliberal account. You use it as a wedge issue to begin a conversation to say, well, actually, if you're really serious about human freedom, if you're really serious about emancipation, if you're really serious about what we can um, do collectively together, then you know, human rights might require much more than this limited version you are offering. And in fact, you know, my competing version of, you know, radical human rights um, is a better one. Um, and one that I think has broader public appeal, um, both, you know, intuitively, I think in terms of uh, just what it would lay out, but also, um, you know, in terms of substantive legal provisions and guarantees that people would be really invested in. So, um, you know, I, there is a limit to that neoliberal program of human rights, but it's also the fact that they're speaking that language provides an opportunity to um, have a debate and try to shift the conversation as well. One last question for you, Zach. We've been speaking with legal scholar and political theorist Zachary Manfredi, who wrote the Boston Review article, Radicalizing Human Rights. You can follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Manfredi, Z-A-K-M-A-N-F-R-E-D-I. He is litigation and advocacy director at the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, which you can learn more about at their website asylumadvocacy.org, and you can follow them on Twitter, at Asylum Advocacy. One last question for you, Zach, and we do this with all of our guests, I promise. Our final question is always the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. What impact would radicalizing human rights have on decisions like Roe v. Wade, or more generally, a woman's right to choose? So I think for a long time, uh, there is a strong and powerful feminist movement, a socialist feminist movement, too, that frames questions of reproductive autonomy as fundamental human rights, fundamental um, to articulations of human freedom. And I think, you know, if you were to draw on that tradition, draw on the work of those activists, feminist thinkers, you would see... um, you know, deep resonances with, I think, a radicalized account of human rights, one that ties it, you know, both to questions of economic and social mobility, um, and also sort of fundamental fairness, gender equality in our society. And I think that um, you also, it would also be tied to really sort of radical political demands. I think um, it would be tied to demand for social transformation now, social transformation through any avenue that's necessary to achieve this liberation, not being limited to 
well, you know, the judgments of law and legal institutions that are inscribed within certain, you know, parameters of normative legal reason, like the Dobbs decision um, was. And so I think, uh, I guess I, I see I see deep resonances and uh, compatibility there um, between radicalized human rights and accounts of reproductive freedom and social and sexual equality. Um, and I, I hope that we see more, more radicalization and more pushes for social transformation, both within and outside the law as a result of this decision. And um, I look forward to continuing to take my cue on that from you know, leaders in the feminist space and, and folks who are doing really great movement work um, on that score. So I'm not, obviously it's very depressing the state of the world we're in at the moment, but I, I'm actually pretty optimistic based on um, what, I, what I've seen folks be able to articulate and sort of lay out as a program for change in the coming coming years. Zachary, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Again, Zachary Manfredi wrote the Boston Review article, Radicalizing Human Rights. We have a link to it at our Facebook page. We shared it on Twitter. Please check out the article at Boston Review. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I truly appreciate it. I really enjoyed having Samuel Moyne on the show back in 2018, and we've discussed human rights since then, of course, but uh, I really appreciate this expansion of his work and your uh, unique insights. Uh, Really fantastic work. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Take care. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell of that conversation with Zachary Manfredi on a reinterpretation of human rights that would actually lead to, you know, equal rights for all humans was in some way enlightening or made you realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. That Patreon podcast happens this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can just go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. And if you do become a Patreon subscriber, you get a special code word that gives you a discount on all of our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Helen. Tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, what are you contributing to the battle against inflation? So the last response that was read was Fabio A's opinions on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The next is Josh F, who says they are melting precious metals into slag and chucking it into the ocean. Oh, that seems (laughs) great environmentalism. Yeah, I guess put the materials back for someone to get again? I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's what, the, that, that car, the DeLorean, they didn't want uh, John DeLorean to make any more of his cars, so they took the actual plates that they used to form the chassis of the car, and they took them out into the Atlantic Ocean and dumped them. <laughs> so, there you go. If you want a new DeLorean, just go searching in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> nice. All right, Egon S., says that what are they contributing to the battle against inflation they are not selling my labor time because no one will buy it (laughs) pretty's having trouble finding a job (laughs) all right ray o asks would an enema kit help oh jeez ray i don't get it (laughs) i don't know but i just don't like the fact that an enema kit just went into my brain (laughs) 
Matthew M is unhappy about this question phrasing, but they, in order to uh, c contribute to the battle against inflation, they are tipping at the farmer's market, which oh. I appreciate. Oh, very much so. You want to go to the farmer's market tomorrow? <laughs> I think you have a I'll conflict of interest on that answer. <laughs> I'll put a tip jar out. Okay. <laughs> Charlie B uh, says that they are contributing flatulence. Oh, jeez. Jesse N says thoughts and prayers. <laughs> okay. Mark A says, if we pull together and don't even get up in the morning, <laughs> let alone buy anything, prices will go down. Uh, good point. I like that idea. General strike. I like that idea, too. It's organized. Okay. Mm. Neil C says that they are contributing to the battle against inflation. Free Nickelback CDs. Oh, Jesus. By the way, Neil C., thank you for your contribution to This Is Hell. That's what the great way to fight against inflation. Contribute to This Is Hell. Nice. There are four responses left on Facebook. Shall we? Uh, let's save those save for tomorrow's show. Okay. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell receives your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, as we do each and every week. We will have the rest of your answers to the question from hell Later this week, it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On June 30th, 1918, 104 years ago this week, the nationally renowned labor leader and four-time Socialist Party candidate for U.S. President Eugene V. Debs was on his way to give a speech in Cleveland when he was arrested by federal agents because back when America was allegedly great, exercising your freedom of speech was a federal offense. Two weeks earlier, Debs had given a speech in Canton, Ohio, apparently on a Ohio tour, in which he had urged his audience to resist the draft and oppose U.S. involvement in World War I, then known as the Great War, and if we ever name another war the Great War, I'm going to be very, very upset. This was not his first arrest, of course, nor was Debs at all unfamiliar with being tracked and harassed by federal authorities. His labor activism had first landed him in a jail 24 years earlier, back in the 19th century, or, con or for contempt of court as a, resort a result of his involvement in the Pullman strike in Chicago, which turned deadly. The six months Eugene Debs spent behind bars in Woodstock, Illinois, had turned him into an avowed socialist since being released, he had devoted himself to the cause, despite ideological conflicts within the movement, and also despite being denounced as a traitor by political and business leaders, excoriated in the press, and even opposed by his own wife. Apparently, even when it was cool, everybody hated socialists. In Cleveland, Debs was indicted for sedition in the U.S. District Court. He called the charges an unconstitutional infringement of his free speech and viewed his conviction as a foregone conclusion, which it likely was. In the trial that followed, his legal team called no witnesses. Instead, Debs gave an impassioned speech in his own defense, again denouncing U.S. involvement in World War I, and again backing socialism and organized labor, which was probably not the greatest legal strategy, as the 
jury quickly found Debs guilty. Debs was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and even after the war was over, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously rejected his appeal. In the election of 1920, Debs would run for president a fifth time from within prison walls in Atlanta. He received almost a million popular votes, or about 3.4% of the national total. A year later, he would be freed after the new president, Warren Harding, commuted his sentence to time served while refusing to issue a pardon. Now that's rotten history. And this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? This upcoming guest tomorrow is... I have it here. Hold on. I know you have it there. I'm psychic that way. (laughs) The Intercept's John Schwartz will talk about his recent article, Right-Wing Supreme Court Continues Its Great Fraud, about the Second Amendment. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show podcast and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. Get well wishes to producer Dan Hill, who could not be here today because he has tested positive and is currently suffering from COVID-19. Get well soon, Dan. We miss you and the best to you and everyone in your family. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.